Remember and don't forget. Remember and don't forget. These are the words that God gives to Moses as all the Israelites are standing before the Jordan and they are going in about to possess the promised land, the long-awaited land that was told to Moses and the people. And he says, just before they go in, to remember and not forget. And, and this, this scene takes place in Deuteronomy 8. And I want to just you to hear this so you get context going into what we're talking about this morning. In Deuteronomy 8, verse 1, it says, All the commandments that I'm commanding you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in the land to possess the land which the Lord swore to give your fathers. You shall remember all the ways which the Lord your God led you through the wilderness. And then he goes on and further in verse 11 he says, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes which I am commanding you this day. And then we end out chapter 8 in Deuteronomy and in verse 18 it says, But you shall remember the Lord your God. For it is he who is giving you power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant which he swore to your fathers, and it is as it is this day. And it shall come that if you, forever, if you ever forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you today that you will surely perish. That is the pep talk going into the land that they are about to take. And now we fast forward. I want you to go to Judges chapter 3 because that is where we're spending most of our time today. And in Judges chapter 3, we have this picture. Uh, and we, we've talked through this. Uh, today we're going to be talking about a character in particular. His name is Ehud. It's not Ehud. It's Ehud. I remember being a Bible teacher at a camp a uh, long, long time ago. And we had this uh, Indian village and there was this guy named Durango. We all had like Indian names. Mine was Hawkeye, but Durango was from Texas, had a big belt buckle. And I remember him talking. I remember this being one of the first times I ever heard this passage. And he said, boys and girls, today we're going to learn about Ehud. And he just kind of talked about Ehud. And I'm all, who's that guy in the... Oh, it's, it's this guy. Um, but Ehud is, is unique and he's particular because he is a left-handed man. We will get there. But I want you to understand that there is a cycle that is going on in the life of the people of Israel. And, and this is how it plays out. We will see this over and over again. But they, they serve the Lord. Israel serves the Lord. And they fall into sin and idolatry. And then they are enslaved. And they don't like slavery. So they cry out to the Lord. And God says, I hear you. He raises up a deliverer, a judge. And then they are delivered. And you would think that that would take for a little while. And it does in most cases. But sometimes it's not very long. And sometimes it's a really long time. But this is the cycle. Now the people of Israel are surrounded. And, and just to give you context on a map of where they're at. Um, this, this is what happens. If you actually go here. Um, go, go to chapter 3 of Judges verse 7. And I'll, I'll just lay out a couple of places before we totally jump into the story. In verse 7 it says, The sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot. They forgot the Lord their God and they served the Baals and the Asherah. They start going after all of the other gods. They, they, they get involved with the gods, that, the, the idols that are being served in the other nations. And so they forgot. And if you go back to Deuteronomy 8, then you know that something bad is about to happen. And so the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, against Israel. And he sold them into the hands. And so there's a people group that comes over. And in verse 9, it says that the sons of Israel, they cried to the Lord and God raised them up a deliverer. 
deliverer. His name was Othniel, and he was this valiant warrior and kind of brought them in and helped deliver them. And then it says in verse 11, the land had rest for 40 years, and then Othniel dies. And then we get to verse 12, and we see the cycle play out again. It says, now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Just as a little bit of a foreshadowing here, that line shows up seven times in the book of Judges. Again, Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And we look at that, and you, you go through the book of Judges, and that's not just the theme of the book of the Judges. It's, it's the it's this theme of, of the Old Testament. And then you see that there's characters even in the New Testament, and that is the theme. And then I start to think, what was wrong with them? And then this thought comes to me, and I think, no, this is my story too. I have this same sin cycle that is playing out in my life where I get stuck over and over again in sin. God delivers me. I don't go enslaved to another people, but the sin that happens in our lives is slavery. You know that, you feel that, and you say, God, why did I do that again? Would you deliver me? And there is this deliverance and reminder of a gracious and compassionate and forgiving God. And we serve him once again only to fall back into sin again. That is the sin cycle. And this is where Israel is stuck. So, as a result, the Lord strengthened a a king, a man named Eglon. He's the king of Moab, and he came against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 13, he gathered to himself the sons of Ammon and Amalek, and he went and he defeated Israel. He smote them in some of your Bibles, and they possessed the city of the palm trees. The sons of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. Understand this. Uh, Eglon, who's the king of Moab, he goes and he gets some friends, some other tribes the the Amalekites and the Ammonites. And so you see there's kind of this full-scale attack. you got Moab and Ammon. And then from the south, we have the Amalekites. And they go in, and they're at the city of palm trees. This is Jericho, which is amazing, because back in Deuteronomy 8, just before they went in, they were crossing the Jordan, the first battle where God says, I am with you, and I'm going to help you as you possess this land is Jericho, right? They march around the city seven times and the wall falls down. And, and the humiliation, the reminder, because they forgot that now they're back in Jericho, but this time not as conquerors, but as slaves. And they would live this way for the next 18 years. And so they don't like their slavery. They don't like their sin. And so once again, they cry out to the Lord. Look in verse 15. When, is, when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Jerah, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. Now, this is important. Why would the Bible give us this kind of detail? Um, what it actually kind of translates and literally means was that he was unable to use his right arm. Some think that he was maybe even paralyzed or crippled on his right side, and so he was unable to. So not only was he a left-handed man, but probably unable to use his right. And I, I, I want to think, how many of you guys in here are left-handed people? You are people of the left? <laughs> all right. I love that all of you, almost all of you were raising your left hand. That's good. Um, 
I want you to think, I, I love lefties. I myself am totally righty. Everything I do is, is righty. But there are lefties in the world who have done amazing things, have accomplished amazing things. I want to give you a little bit of a history of left-handed people. These are some famous lefties. Um, in the sports world, we have guys like Babe Ruth or Phil Mickelson or Randy Johnson. In the acting world, you have people like Angelina Jolie, Oprah, Tom Cruise, and then even amongst some of our brainiac nerd friends, we have Bill Gates, lefty, who would have thought, and one of my people, Albert Einstein. But lefties, this is not like a new thing. Lefties have always been around. Uh, this is Napoleon, uh, Leonardo da Vinci, and maybe one of the more famous lefties, Ned Flanders who opened up a store called The Left Orm. It's a store specifically for left-handed people. And then you, you go over into the world of politics. Now, this is actually kind of interesting. Ronald Reagan, if you see him signing documents, it's always with his right hand, but they say that he was actually born a lefty and his parents disciplined him and told him that he could not use his left hand, that he must use his right hand. And, and then we have other presidents. There's quite a few presidents, actually, who are left-handed folks. We have Bush... And we have Clinton and even our current president, Obama. And so this is where we actually get this idea of they are on the left, politically speaking. Thank you. I'll be here for the next 30. Um, one of my favorite famous lefties, the colonel. So lefties make great fried chicken. Uh, even one of our pastors, John Eshelman, is a lefty. You used your right arm, though. Okay. Uh, some famous uh, lefties that are very close to me would be these two. Oh, that's my wife and my daughter. Um, so my daughter is not only Jewish, but she's left-handed and she has red hair. That is the most unique person on the face of the earth. <laughs> but not only are those two lefties, but actually all the kids are lefties. I am alone, the right in the family. Jed, he writes with his, but he, he's like Babe Ruth. Anyway, um, so lefties. We're going to talk about lefties. This is an important thing, and I, I want this to be a little bit of a theme. Um, and, and just for those of you who are uh, lefties, we all need to remember that August 13th uh, this year is Left Handers Day. Um, but this is the story, and this is the guy that we're going to be talking about, and his name is Ehud. And he comes against, he is the deliverer that God raises up that they might overthrow, and they might have their land, and they might worship their God once again. But you look and you think about lefties and the history of left-handed people, it will shock you. Listen to some of this. Um, in previous centuries, back in the day, and I even think about like Ronald Reagan just a little bit, but lefties would be spanked in school and chastised at home for being different. Their left hands would be tied behind their backs in an effort to force them to write with their correct hand. There used to be extreme and severe suspicions of anything left. In the history of left-handed people, the Latin term for left is the word sinister, which is, in modern English, it can, be, it can mean evil, menacing, or threatening. Don't leave if you're a lefty. But in contrast, dexter is the Latin term for right-handed, and it's used in a complimentary way when talking of somebody who is well-skilled with their hands. They are dexterous. Now... 
it's, it's, it's almost bizarre to even think that we ever lived in a world where that was an issue, where we had this kind of prejudice against lefties. And, uh, and I obviously, I have them in my family. But I want us to understand this. Um, this whole story that we look at this morning is, is about an unlikely character doing something unlikely. And, and there's, there's this story of deliverance. And we are in a series right now called Overcoming. And I want us to think through and personalize this for ourselves. How can we overcome obstacles um, when, when we look to God for help in this? Um, oftentimes, God does things in unexpected ways. Um, God employs unlikely people. He utilizes unusual situations. And he creates unpredictable results. So let's look at the unlikely person that God has chosen. And it's in the book of Judges. And I want to keep going. Let's go to verse 15. And it says this. When the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Jerah, a Benjaminite, which actually means the son of my right hand. He was a left-handed man. Uh, this is actually really cool to just so you know the benjaminites were this group of people uh, that were actually known for being either ambidextrous or left-handed if you jumped ahead to judges chapter 20 you don't have to but just listen to this from the cities that day the sons of benjamin they numbered 26,000 who drew the sword so 26,000 were out there and fighting and besides the inhabitants of Gibeah who were numbered there were 700 choice men out of all of these there were 700 choice men who were left-handed, each one could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. It's kind of cool. I, I, I was shocked at how many left-handed comments. But Benjaminites were known at this time for having left-handed folks, and Ehud is one of those. Now, the sons of Israel sent tribute by him, by Ehud, or Ehud, to Eglon, the king of Moab. They would have to go, and because he is the king for the last 18 years, they have to pay tribute. There's this, this gift. It's a tax that they would give to Eglon, the king of Moab. Ehud, he made himself a sword which had two edges. It was a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his cloak. Now, I want you to understand a couple of things. If you were going to pay tribute to the king, they didn't have metal detectors back then, but you definitely could not go there armed because the king must be protected at all costs. So he fashions together a sword. It's two edges, a cubit, which is roughly 18 inches. They say the cubit is from your elbow up to your hand. Uh, Mine's a little bit shorter. But uh, I brought in uh, a sword. This is uh, 19 inches, so close enough. Um, I was asking my boys last night if they had some swords because we play every once in a while and and we couldn't find any but uh my my middle guy jed who is sick he got sick last night he said daddy i'm really sorry i couldn't come hear your story this morning so i made you a a sword and so we have um here's jed's sword that's cute right okay but here's the sword and here's the interesting thing that that ehud does it says that he takes the sword and he binds it under his cloak on his right thigh they say about 10% of the population is left-handed. If you were coming in war and you were right-handed, you usually want to put your sword on your left thigh because when the time comes to fight and you come in battle, you reach across and you pull the sword out and now you're ready for battle. If you're right-handed and it's over here on your right thigh, it gets a little clunky and awkward, right? Like, I gotcha, right? And now we're ready. But if you're left-handed and it's on your right thigh, 
it makes a little bit more sense. You come out. Now, Ehud is the most unlikely, but he's also probably the perfect guy for the job because he has brought a sword with him that he made. It's a cubit in length, and he puts it on his right thigh. The guys, I'm imagining some kind of security protocol that they're going through, and as they're looking, they're all, oh, that's the guy with the crippled arm. He's not going to do anything. They probably look over here. Oh, there's nothing there. He's safe. Let's let him through. Okay? This is, this is why that's important. So he goes through, and they pay the tribute. And in verse 17, it says, He presented the tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. And then we get some detail about Eglon. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. That's what it says in the Bible. His name, Eglon, actually means big calf. And I don't think it's talking about the leg muscle. I think it's like a large cow. Eglon, the king, is a very fat man. Now, I, I want... I want it's, it's funny, and the story gets kind of really gory and awesome in a second, but I want you to hear this because there's one thing in this sin cycle that Israel over and over again has to get over, and it is the sin, the lust of their flesh. In, in the book of Romans chapter 1, when, when the people's hearts just continually were going after and lusting after the, the, the sins of their heart, their flesh, there's just a point where God just says, if that's where you want to go, if that's what you want to worship, then... By all means, go for it. Um, over and over again, though, the people of Israel, they have this battle with the flesh. And it's so amazing to me. It's almost poetic that the writer here gives us this picture of a king. A king who is the perfect example of flesh and giving themselves over to the flesh. And they worshipped these other idols, and they forgot about the Lord their God. And, and God is saying, if that's what you want, then you can have it, and you can have it in full, even with this guy named Eglon. So they come, and they give the tribute to him. And it came about, when he had finished presenting the tribute, we have this unusual situation that comes up. In verse 18, they, they present the tribute, and they, then they sent the people away. After they had finished presenting the tribute, that he sent the people away who had carried the tribute. So Ehud says, okay, you guys can go in verse 19. But he himself turned back from the idols which were at Gilgal, Gilgal, which is also just this other poetic twist of he's turning his back on idols and he's turning his face towards God. And he says, he looks to the king and says, Eglon, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he said, Keep silence. And all who attended him, the king, left him. And Ehud came to him while he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. Ehud stretched out his left hand. He took the sword from his right thigh and he thrust it into the belly of the king. This is what God was calling him to. Does it bother you just a little bit that the hero in the story is an assassin? As we go through the book of Judges, our minds and our hearts are going to have to wrestle with this idea that God is calling his people to war. He's calling his people to come back and, and take the land. And, and it, it could be looked at as divine judgment from God. And it can be looked at as 
as these people that God, God said, you know what, you're going to be tested because there's been people who were left in the land that were supposed to have been knocked out a long time ago. But we need to go in. And, and Israel, the land, the promised land, was always set up as this place where the people of Israel would be able to go in and worship and serve the Lord their God. He never said to go in there and take slaves or to plunder. And the one time that that happened, um, God deals with it. But he says, I want you to take the land. I want you to dispossess the land from the nations that are there and drive them out. And this will be a theme that we have to come through. And it's one of those questions that when we stand before God face to face saying, really, is this the best way? God, tell us, because in your holiness and in your justice, I don't, I don't get it. I am too finite for this. And as we go through, you'll see tens of thousands of people were killed and Israel moves in. I want us to acknowledge that because that's in the room, that's in the passage. But this is the deliverer that God has set up. He's an unlikely person, and this is the unlikely situation. We get the king, and he comes up. He takes the sword, and he thrusts it through, and he sticks it into the belly of Eglon. Verse 22, it says that the handle also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade. He didn't even draw the sword out of his belly. And refuse, dung, came out. His bowels broke open and he died there. Now, I've never done this passage with adults. I love doing this story with junior hires. And we capitalized. And and really, like, the challenge for me was like, oh, there's something else that happened besides the blood and the guts. But this is the scene. It's just Ehud and the king alone in the cool roof chamber probably the bathroom area, and he kills the king. The, the guy that doesn't have the arm that works very well over here takes his left hand, and he does away with the king. And then Ehud went out into the vestibule and shut the doors of the roof chamber behind him, and he locked them. In verse 24, when he had gone out, his servants, the king's servants, came and looked And watch, the word behold is going to show up three times in the next two verses. Ready? Behold, there is a surprise for them. Behold, the doors of the roof chamber were locked. And they said, he is only relieving himself in the cool room. Some people, like theologians, they're trying to like make this nice. He was going to the bathroom is what they thought. And since he's a larger king, maybe he's taking a little bit while he had a lot in the feast before, right? And they waited until they became anxious. How long is that? If you are like one of the servants of the king, what do you give him? 10 minutes? 20 minutes? Was it an hour? Man, he's having trouble today. They waited until they became anxious, but behold, he did not open the doors of the roof chamber. When is the king going to be done? Therefore, they took the key and they opened. Can you imagine? Like, oh, you're doing it. I'm not doing it. You, you, I'm, you go first, right? They take the key. Hey, king, what's going on? They get the key. They open it. And behold, their master had fallen to the floor dead. And that is the story of how Lefty killed Hefty. <laughs> That's all I got. Thank you. Let me see. Yep, that was the last joke for the morning. Okay. We had enough last week with Gunger. All right. He falls to the floor and he's dead. 
Ehud somehow pulls it off. The unlikely character, an unusual situation, gives unpredictable results. And this is how the story finishes. He's buying a lot of time. Ehud is taking off. He's catching up to those who came with him to pay the tribute. And all the king's horses and all the king's men are waiting for Eglon to get out of the bathroom. Now Ehud escaped while they were delaying and he passed by the idols. They didn't have to throw that in there, but it's there. He passed by the idols and he escaped to Seir. He gets out. And just this picture of, I I just, my thinking is, if I could put myself in Ehud's shoes, is that he is running out. He's like, I can't believe I just did that. And he's going by and he sees the idols and he's thinking to himself, you are the ones that got us into this mess and we are not going to come back to you. And now deliverance is coming. It's not just the one king, right? There's still an army that they have to contend with. And so he is running out. He makes his way to this place called Seir. And in verse 27, it came about when he arrived, he blew the trumpet. It's a call to war. He blew the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And the sons of Israel went down with him from the hill country and he was in front of them. Can you imagine? The leader of the army is the guy who can't use his right arm, but he just killed the king of Moab. They've been enslaved for 18 years and freedom is coming again. We got to get out. This is our time. And he said, pursue them. For the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. And even Ehud understands in this moment. It is not by his power, it is not by his strength, but only by the strength of the Lord's. God has given them into your hands today. Let's go, it's time. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan opposite Moab so nobody else could get in. You have to go to Israel to remember and see what all that's like. But they seized it and they did not allow anyone to cross. And in verse 29, they struck down at that time about 10,000 Moabites. Not just the weak ones. It says all robust and valiant men and no one escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel. And the land was undisturbed for 80 years. That's a pretty good run. They did it. They overcame. God gave them a deliverer. They followed the deliverer. And for 80 years, they had peace. For 80 years, they probably did away with the idols. But over that time, you could keep going and you could see. And that's the horrible, unfortunate thing as we go through this series is once again, Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. That is your story. That is my story. And so for us, it's not that we need to get out from underneath some dictator, some king who's ruling us. We have to get out underneath the yoke of slavery, of sin that is keeping us tied. And so for us, overcoming the obstacle of sin in our lives with God's help leads us to Jesus. I want you to understand and hear this, that Ehud is a type. He is pointing us to Jesus that Jesus was the unlikely person to help us overcome sin, that Jesus' death was the unusual situation to help us overcome our sin, and Jesus' resurrection was the unpredictable result to give us life to overcome our sin. When Jesus came, he was the unlikely character. You look at this passage, Isaiah 52, it says, He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. 
We have this beautiful picture of Jesus and he's glowing like the girl from seventh heaven and he's not. He was this man who was not attractive and he was here on earth. He was despised and he was forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. His life was not all that wonderfully happy. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. But Jesus came, unlikely, was not even recognized by most when he came here to this earth. And he came as an unlikely man to do something unusual that nobody expected would bring us any relief. And that was that he died on the cross. And this is the picture and this is why. In Colossians 2, it says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way and nailed it to the cross. Jesus did that. Who would have thought that our freedom to be unburdened of our sin would come through a man, an unlikely man dying on a cross for us? But he was not just man, he was God. But he didn't just stay dead. And this is what we celebrate when we come here is that he resurrected. And that was the unpredictable outcome. In Colossians 2, it says, When he had disarmed the rulers and the authorities, he made a public display of them. The whole situation turned around, having triumphed over them through him. This points to Jesus. If you want to get out of the sin cycle that you are continually in, We have to look to Jesus. Ehud is a character. He's this unlikely what is going on with him that points us to Jesus. But not only does he point us to Jesus, but he points us to ourselves. I want you to think about this. Think of what you were. See, Ehud points us to Jesus, but he also points us to ourselves. Think of what you were. There's this passage in 1 Corinthians 1, and it says this. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world. The foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. Why? So that no man may boast before God. God used a left-handed man in the book of Judges to deliver a left-handed people. I want you to hear that God sent his only son, Jesus, to save us because you and I are the left-handed people. We were broken. We were ashamed. We lived in our sin. And there are so many of you in this room that said, I'm trading that in for the joy of salvation that God has put out before me. And I don't want to live according to this sin cycle over and over again. I want to be freed from that. And so that has to change our Worship That has to change how we live. This is not just like get your free ticket, you're in heaven, do whatever you want for the next 50 years. This has to change how we live today. It has to change how we worship. And we we become rich by giving our wealth away. And we become, 
we become servants instead of getting what we want and we give things away. And so this life is totally backwards and, and it's, it's different. And that's the life that God is calling us to. This true worship is not this manipulation. And I think, and you're going to see this in the next few weeks, that the people of Israel are, are, are messed up because their view of God is this exchange. It's, it's idol worship, and that's what they're surrounded by with the people there, but it's, it's what, they, what they think and how they think God works. Their, their worship of God, their attention to God is, is as if he was an idol, that if I give you X, then you will give me Y. If I just do this, then you will give me that. And what we're trying to do when we do that is we think that we are the ones in control. But the idea is that we don't do deals with God, that God doesn't do deals with us because we have nothing to offer God except the devotion of our hearts, our commitment to walk with Him. But it's not like, oh, I got in all seven quiet times this week and so God's going to bless me today. It's not some exchange. The exchange has already happened that you were once in sin and then you put your faith and your trust in Jesus that you are absolved of that, that you are forgiven and you can live in freedom. You don't have to live in slavery anymore. We have to understand that we are the left-handed people. And so God wants to use you and God wants to deliver you and God wants you to be freed and and to work in ways that you maybe never ever thought possible. How many times are you going to put up with the cycle? How many times, how many years are you going to go through and just say, this is it. This is what my life is going to be like. I'm just, people of Israel did it. I'm going to do it too. My invitation to you this morning is an opportunity to get right. It's to approach a God that loves us and pours out his grace to us and says, I know what you are. I know everything about you. And it doesn't matter how much you look good on the outside and how much you've got it together. I still love you despite. How long will we put up with slavery in our lives? God sent Jesus and he said, I have come that you might have life and you would have it abundantly. So my invitation comes in two ways. If you're walking with the Lord and you continue to see this cycle of sin in your life, then this morning is a time to surrender and say, God, I realize that my deliverer has already come in the person of Jesus And it's not by my righteousness, but it is the righteousness that you have given me, which is your righteousness, and I submit myself to you once again. Help me out of this. And then there are some of you today who have never done that, and you're just trying to get by. And you are white-knuckling it through your life, and you think that if I could just do good things, and somehow the good outweighs the bad, then I am in, and that is not how it works. It is a full-life surrender to the person of Jesus Christ. To remember and to know that we have sinned, that we've all messed up and we've fallen short of God's glory and that he gave us a deliverer. We have a deliverer. There's hope. I talked to so many people without hope. 
You need hope, and the hope is not in the next job or the, the raise that you're going to get or the person that you're going to be dating or the child that you're hoping, but hope is in Christ alone. If you want to put your trust in Him this morning to leave a life of sin behind and to step into that, then I want to invite you to do that today. We're going to have an opportunity right now to worship God. I'm going to have the band come up. And as they are, I want us to think about this, that as we worship this morning, as we sing songs, um, and if you haven't been to Calvary before, we have stations set up. And at the stations is a place where you can take the bread and the cup. And we do this to remember. But this is a, a, a reminder to us of who we are. Remember and don't forget Remember and don't forget who you are and what Christ has done for you. So as you take the bread and you take the cup, that we, we take that and we, we drink deeply and we remember that. We give our offering and we do this. And this is not an exchange, remember. As you give your offering, it's not, I'm going to give so that I get something. I'm going to do this, God, as an act of worship. I will leave it here. This is a sacrifice I give to you because you have delivered me already. And we want to pray with you. And, and what I'm going to do is I'm just going to walk over there. There's a little sign that says prayer point. There's another one over here, but I'm going to go over here. And if you want something to change in your life, if you want to give your life over to Jesus, then I, myself, and other pastors, elders, and just Christians, we want to pray with you. And we want to see that deliverance in your life. Will you join me and pray? Lord God, Help us. There are some in here that are under the yoke of slavery. It might be 18 years. It might have been 80 years. Um, There are some of us that have been just continually just enslaved to sin. And not even a variety and a myriad of sin, but just the same one over and over again. And we want it to stop. And so... I picture and I hear the voices of the Israelites crying out once again, God, I'm stuck and I don't want this anymore. And I imagine that in this room this morning, there are those of us that are crying out from the inside saying, God, would you deliver me? So God, would you move here? We know that you are a God that stands with your arms wide open and you came that we might be saved. That There is grace, there is forgiveness, and there is love. And there is life abundantly and life everlasting. Help us to remember your goodness and to not forget. In Jesus' name.